0: Good evening, friends. I invite you to take a Bible in hand, turn to the New Testament book of Acts. One of the passages we will consider this evening will be Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the Purakh, it can be found on page 910 I invite all that are here to consider sticking around after our worship service, and we'll head right into the fellowship hall for a fellowship potluck. Even if you weren't able to bring something, please come and help us clear out the food that has been brought, and so all are welcome to stay. This evening, we're uh, continuing a series, tough questions, hard questions for Christianity, and our question is, isn't Christianity simply a Western religion? Isn't Christianity simply a Western religion? So before we read God's Word, maybe a little bit of kind of context uh, for this question. Uh, What do I mean by Western? Uh, We're talking about Western civilization. Western civilization is the ethnicities and cultures that emerged historically out of Europe. So our, our country here in the U.S., is part of Western civilization. Now that's just a big category that includes social norms, ethical values, traditional customs, political systems, and belief systems. And the dominant belief system of the West for centuries has been Christianity. And though many in the West today do not claim Christianity to be their belief system, their worldview, their religion, the shadow of Christianity still looms over the West. So that's what we mean by Western. Now, there's something else to address here at the beginning. You may be asking yourself this, who is asking this question? Isn't Christianity simply a Western religion? And I recognize that It may not be anyone here in the pew tonight who is wrestling with this question, but I would assure you that your neighbors, some here in our community, are wrestling with this question. Uh, There's a couple different versions of this question. Maybe I could kind of tease it out for us a little bit. There's a real cynical version of this question that goes something along this lines that uh, it's a narrative that all religion is a means of oppressing people. And in the West, the religion of Christianity has been a tool of the privileged and the powerful to protect their status in society. So therefore, Western nations seek to export Christianity and spread it across the globe for the purpose of global dominance. That's the super cynical version of this question. There's a less cynical opinion that would say, maybe Christianity is fine for Westerners, but it is not superior to other belief systems found in other parts of the world. Therefore, it should not be exported. You should not proselytize. You should not seek to make converts from other cultures and other places. Respect their belief systems. Respect their values. You can have yours, have theirs. Or maybe this could be the way that some of you here tonight might have wrestled with the question related to this. Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm inclined to Christianity because, well, I was born into a Christian family, a nation where Christianity has always been the dominant religion. Maybe you went through this thought exercise of saying, well, if I was born in India, I would have been raised in the caste system wouldn't eat beef, believe in reincarnation and millions of gods, and that would feel normal to me. That would feel right to me, because that's just the civilization that I was born into and raised in. With that said, I, I do believe it's important that we address this question. Hopefully, you see the importance of it. It's important to give a defense for the claims of Christianity, Important for the believer here tonight to maintain a global vision for Christian ministry and the expansion of the church. In summary, it's important because there is one gospel and only one gospel for all peoples and in all places. And I I hope to just simply show that that gospel is not an invention. Of Western civilization. In fact, that gospel doesn't belong to one culture, but is above all cultures, calling all people to faith and repentance. We do want to see something of the gospel's impact on culture. So, with all that preface, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help in reading God's word together tonight. Please join me again in prayer. Lord, we come to your word because we need it, recognize that our thinking is faulty. Faulty thinking leads to faulty hearts and disobedience and ways that do not honor you. It is our desire that tonight we would see the glory of the gospel gospel that is for all people. We ask for your help, Heavenly Father, that you would send your spirit among us, that your son may be exalted, that you would, Lord, help us to see the goodness of the gospel that you have given, that we are to proclaim. You pray for the seeker here among us, you pray for the wrestler here among us. Or that you would give them ears to hear and eyes to see what you have revealed in your word. Give us all ears and eyes. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock, my redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us bring our attention to God's word in Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 through 11. Now there dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia? Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, in Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues mighty works of God. Amen. That ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth. On all our hearts. The way that I want to approach this tonight is with three headings. The first thing that I want us to see from the Book of Acts is that Jesus is the Redeemer and Reconciler of ethnicities. The Redeemer and Reconciler of ethnicities. The second thing is that, right? Simply stated, Christianity is not a product of Western culture. And then the third thing, the export and influence of Christianity is a universal good, good for all cultures. So let's first consider the redeemer and reconciler of ethnicities, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the flow of the book of Acts. Jesus was a Jew whose first disciples were Jews, but his message, his salvation, was intended to go beyond. It begins in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. It ends with one of his converts, the Apostle Paul in Rome, seeking to bring the gospel message that Jesus is a Savior of sinners to the furthest realms. So in chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Acts, Jesus told his disciples before ascending into heaven, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's something of the outline of the book of Acts, that Luke, as he's telling the story, he's following the progress, the advance, the going of the church into the known world at that time. And so here is a momentous occasion And Luke writes it in such a way to highlight the significance of what is happening. Jesus told his disciples to wait for this power to come from on high, the Holy Spirit to descend. As they are praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them like the sound of a rushing mighty wind and there's tongues of flames of fire above these disciples that are gathered and it is causing a scene at the Feast of Pentecost. And people are gathering And they're hearing the wonderful works of God in their native tongues. In one setting, there are 15 different nations identified here. It's its own table of nations. And in verse 5, Luke puts it this way, devout men from every nation under heaven. It's very intentional. He's saying, look, Jesus told his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to have power to go to the ends of the earth. And that to demonstrate that on this occasion, he gives them a gift of tongues in order that they might tell others in their native tongue about the gospel, that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of all. That is the flow of the book of Acts and it begins here with this momentous occasion, that from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond, the gospel will go. And Luke wants you to know that every nation under heaven is represented there. When was the last time that the, the Bible spoke about all the nations being together? Well, it was not nations yet. It was when all the people were together in Genesis chapter 11. It's in Genesis chapter 11 that it says that all the people went to the east and they, plant, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And the people gathered together in Genesis 11 verse 4 say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So all the peoples of the earth In Genesis 11 are gathered, and they conspire to build this tower to the heavens. And it's an anti-God tower. It is a statement to say that if we come together as people, we can reach supremacy and dominance. It is a statement of hubris and pride. It's an anti-God statement that they're coming together. Look what we can accomplish on our own. We could be great unto ourselves. And go back and read Genesis 11. It's, it's told in such a, a, a beautiful way that it's almost as if God is, is looking down at their tower and laughing. Kind of like, you know, you're, you're, a toddler has put together these Legos and is so proud of it. And of course, if it's your toddler, you're like, that's fantastic. Way to go, buddy. And you look at it, you could just kick it over and step on it. Now, it hurts to step on Legos, but it wouldn't hurt the Lord to do so. And he looks down, Tower of Babel, and he says, in a moment, curse. You've come together against me, now I will disperse you. And this is the beginning of of the nations that will populate the earth. They had one tongue, and then they are cursed, and they have many tongues. Humanity was fallen and fractured, but they thought they could come together without God and promote peace and prosperity without him. He says, I'm too kind to let you think that deception will work, that that lie can become a reality. There will not be peace and prosperity on earth apart from my rule and reign, because sin will tear you apart. So God disperses the peoples, confusing their languages. But now the one who would come to redeem people and bring people back to God pours out his Holy Spirit on his followers and Babel is reversed here in Acts chapter 2. Nations are gathered. There's different languages, but they're all now Hearing the same message. That all peoples can come to God. There's reconciliation happening in the vertical here in Pentecost. John Stott put it this way. At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, heaven humbly descended on earth there's vertical reconciliation that's being proclaimed in the tongues of the people there there's also a horizontal effect Pentecost marks the beginning of a new humanity out of a fallen alienated humanity God in Christ reversing the curse of Babel So just think about how fractured our world remains today And how the efforts of governments and civilizations have failed to improve and to bring peace and prosperity globally. The world remains fractured and torn apart by differences of language, ethnicity, and cultures. But God and his son has provided a savior for all people. Who brings all people to God as to know him as father. And puts them all in the same family. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. There's one gospel for all peoples. So in this conversation about the religion of one civilization versus the religion of another civilization, I want to remind you, friends, that Christianity stands above all civilizations, that it represents the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdoms of this earth. And that kingdom comes to be a blessing wherever it shows up. There's one gospel for all people. There's one savior for all people. Second thing I wanted to consider tonight, and this is more a historical perspective to really take seriously the claim and weigh it out historically, though we won't spend an enormous amount of time doing this. Well, is Christianity a product of Western culture? It seems bizarre that, that we would even ask that because Jesus and his early followers were obviously Middle Easterners. They predate Western culture by centuries, and yet this is still a claim. And so the claim would go something along the lines of, well, what Christianity is in the West is different than what Jesus instituted, practiced, than what his early followers did. It's, it's another religion that basically is the religion of Europe that then like as we said before, for nefarious reasons, is used for oppression or to hold up and sustain the privilege of others. But what we see in church history is that the earliest churches were in Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Ethiopia, and North Africa. It is not a matter of that Christianity was in the north and went to the south But it really was in the south and emerged and went north. And the Christianity that spread north is the orthodoxy that we hold to today. See, it was what you know about so many matters related to the Christian religion, you owe to early African theologians who were crucial to the formation of Christian theology. I could just name three of them, just to begin with. Tertullian, who lived from roughly 160 to 220. He's from Carthage, North Africa. Tertullian, as a, as a theologian, you know what he's responsible for? It's so much of our Trinitarian theology. That we understand that the Trinity is one God in three persons. It was he the one who helped us to, to articulate what Scripture says about the God who is there that he's in three persons. And in these three persons, it's not just that they're are one God in three persons, but they have one substance. The Holy Spirit's God. The Son is God. The Father is God. He's a very important Trinitarian theologian. Italian. Then Athanasius, 296 to 373, is roughly when he lived. He's from Alexander, Alexandria, Egypt. Athanasius so important in in the course of church history. Early on, there were controversies related to the doctrine of Christ. Did Jesus have a beginning? was, Was he just merely an exalted one, or is he eternal? And so, Athanasius took on Arianism. Arianism, the era that taught that Jesus, there was a time that he was not. Athanasius, going through the scriptures, showed the church the way forward. Crucial. From Alexandria, Egypt. His work, his writing on the incarnation of the word of God is a must-read for theology students still today. And then the third one that I, I would highlight now is Augustine of Hippo. He was from what is now present-day Algeria in North Africa. He lived from 354 to 430. He may be the most important theologian of church history. He wrote on and explained and further our understanding from Scripture, things related to the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, original sin, free will and grace, predestination, the church and the sacraments. He wrote the first Christian autobiography called Confessions. He wrote an important work, The City of God, dealing with the kingdom of God and the empires of the world. These three men set the course for orthodoxy. God, in his providence, used these men. They far predate Luther, Calvin, and others. Church of England, whatever the claim may be. It's during these fourth and fifth centuries that these councils are taking place, that these men and others are gathering together. And they're not gathering in the West, they're gathering in places like Constantinople and Africa, in the Middle East, in different regions. And it is in these councils that the Christian faith is is clarified. The apostolic message is preserved. Orthodoxy is defined. The historian Thomas Oden put it this way, Christian dogma was formed with precision in Africa before it was received worldwide. The very practice of gathering theologians, the, the method and the process of councils was something that began with African Christianity in the history of Christianity it is not Europe that produced the Christianity that we cling to today but it was Christianity that produced much of the good that arrived and developed out of Europe so Christianity is not a product of Western culture we would actually probably say Better that the good that we can recognize and see in Western culture is because of Christianity's influence. And it was an influence that went south to north, not north to south. There remains questions about culture today. Well, we must recognize that the growing church um, globally the US and in the west is fallen behind and actually there is the flourishing and the making of converts that are outpacing the western church in the global south africa and even in china what do we do with this question of culture well recognizing that god is a God who exists in unity and diversity. Three persons, one God. And so cultural diversity is consistent with Christianity because we see unity and diversity in the very triune God himself. And we see it in part of his good design. So here there's a tension between, in one hand, we explain the different cultures of the world due to Babel, And another way, we can recognize that God, also in his providence, intended for there to be diversity among his creation in order to reflect his glory, his genius, his brilliance. With that said, some might say, well then, shouldn't every church represent the vision of heaven in which there's going to be all cultures and peoples together, worshiping God together. The reality is that no one church can bear that burden of reproducing heaven on earth, this side of Christ's return. Furthermore, it's not a matter of just simply recognizing the good of cultural diversity among Christians today in the world. It's not a matter of saying that, okay, we want to be open-minded and recognizing that there are good things, recognizing that our history as Christians doesn't just reside here in the U.S. and it doesn't just come from Western civilization. There would be some that would look at the different cultural expressions of Christianity in the world today and say, there is much for us to learn. And that is very important, but you got to get the order right. It's not cultural diversity that improves Christianity. It is having eyes to recognize where Christ is at work in other cultures. And learning from that is what benefits us and opens our view to God's manifold work in the world through His Son. It's not a matter of improving Christianity by diversity, but recognizing how Christ is at work in a diverse cultures across the world. So all I have to say is that recognizing the church family historically that we are part of and the church family that we're in today, we must be careful to not fall into the trap of a form of tribalism. It is good that Our church worships the way that we worship in our culture, in our place. In a way that could be accessible to our our neighbors in some way. But even in doing that, we have to make decisions that represent different preferences in order that we might gather in unity and worship together. And so even within the West, there are different expressions of, of worship and culture. And the tendency for us is to especially for us, fi- reform types is to figure out everything and say that we got it all nailed down. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across that, where people, some of their concerns with those Presbyterians is that we just, we have an answer for everything. And they say, that, that seems like you're, you're not holding on to enough mystery. Well, that's a, I think that's a caricature of Presbyterians, but sometimes we give off that air, that we do a superior version of, of worship. We have a superior version of, of, of preaching. We have a superior version of music. We need to hold that gently, hold that lightly. And it's not really that consistent with our own Reformed theology to have that posture. Reformed theology leads us to humility, but also in our own confession of faith in Westminster Confession Chapter 1, paragraph 6, there's this acknowledgement that at some point we have to make judgment calls about do we have drums? Do we have pianos? Do we have saxophones? Do we have electric guitars? What does the stage look like? What color should the, the, the worship space be? In Westminster Confession Chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So the main thing that we should look and assess and examine cultural expressions of worship is, is it accordance with God's word, recognizing that there are occasions in which things like the circumstances concerning worship and the government of the church that we are to look to principles for God's word, but things aren't explicitly commanded. All that to say is that let us recognize the beauty of the gospel and the Great Commission. You don't need a beautiful Steinway piano to plant a church. Don't. You don't need a sound system. It is a gift of common grace to have air conditioning, but you don't need it to have heat in the winter. You don't even need a roof over your head. The church gathered in worship can look different across the globe, and that's part of the design. What do you need? You need a Bible in the language of the people. You need men who fit the qualifications laid out in God's word to lead and gather God's people together. You need songs in the vernacular that people might sing the message of the Bible and the words of the Bible in worship. You need some water so that you can baptize. You need bread and wine. And that's it. God's word, water, bread and wine, and you have everything you need to plant a church anywhere on the globe. So be encouraged when you hear news of God doing miraculous and mighty things and don't be overly concerned if it doesn't exactly look like your church a good prayer would be, God, would you reform that movement, that church, that group, the church in the global south, wherever it may be, may you keep them from error and may you reform them according to God's word. Just as we ask the same for us. Like, God, you would continually reform us according to your word. That you would strip away the trappings and the hindrances from our own culture and place. And that our minds would be renewed, our worship would be according to Scripture, and that our gospel would be pure and true and preserved. Now, let's close here, considering the export and influence of Christianity. And I just want to briefly make the case that it is a good for all cultures, That is a good thing that Christianity spreads across the globe. It may be stated that Christianity is responsible for the problems of Western culture. And I mean, just a simple, just rebuttal is things done in the name of Christ do not equal Christianity. Right? We got to acknowledge that. That there have been terrible things done in the name of Christ throughout human history since Pentecost but that does not mean that it's consistent with the Christian message. Just little reminders from history itself would tell us men like William Wilberforce, who led the abolition of slavery in England that then was the precursor to the abolition of slavery here in the US, they were driven by a Christian worldview and by gospel conviction. Wilberforce said himself, God Almighty has set Before me two great objects The suppression of the slave trade And the reformation of manners It is Christianity that gives you What you need To make the case Against chattel slavery Recognizing the image of God In every person Recognizing that they are Either in Adam A sinner condemned Or in Christ Part of the new creation Other things Christianity exalts, in a good way, the place of children in a society. Where oftentimes, children are neglected, abused, with no conscience, just left out. Christianity, wherever it is growing, it protects and provides for children, because Jesus himself said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven." Christianity in its day from Christ onward is revolutionary in the treatment of women in human history. Recalling that there's many examples from the Gospels in the New Testament, but it was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, who were the first witnesses of Christ's resurrection. In a time in which they would not have been considered credible witnesses in court, God, in his sovereign purposes, says, These two women will be the first people who will see Jesus after he comes out of the tomb. It is Jesus himself who stops after going out of his way into Samaria, a thing that Jews didn't do to meet with a woman in John chapter 4 that other Jews would have never talked to. They wouldn't have gone into Samaria, much less sit down in the middle of the day and talk to the woman that Jesus had a conversation with. Jesus comes to her rescue and then sends her as his witness back to her hometown. Christianity is good for the poor. Historically, it always has been good for the poor. But it's not just good for the poor, it also puts a check to privilege. In James chapter 2, verse 9, James condemns partiality He's writing to the church and he says, hey, when someone who is rich comes in, you better not treat them better than the poor among you. If you show partiality, you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Every culture and every society privileges the wealthy, but not Christianity. Christianity as special care for the orphan and the widow the most needy in cultures and societies James chapter 1 verse 27 religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows orphans and widows I love that verse many of you find that verse uh, helpful and you love it too because it, it speaks of the, a practical expression of our devotion to God but Notice how in that verse alone, it is the gospel that drives Christians to those who need the most help. It's undefiled before God the Father. Those who know God the Father, their hearts are drawn to the fatherless and those who've lost their husband, their family. Christianity promotes servant leadership. History again and again has shown that those who come into power abuse the power, but that is not the teaching of Christianity. Matthew 20, verse 26, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Wherever you see a leadership book written today, even if it never mentions Christ, if they mention servant leadership, that is an example of the way that Christianity produced certain goods in western civilization that is not something that fallen humans would concoct on their own that the best way to be a leader is to get down and grab the wash basin and a towel and wash dirty feet but this is who jesus is and this is who he calls his people to do and this is how he models leadership so these are examples of cultural goods that we as Christians can say, hey, it is a good thing to spread this message, but not to lose the point. It's more than a cultural good. The gospel is the only gospel for all peoples. 1 John 2, verse 2, Jesus, he, he, is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who takes the wrath of God for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If anyone in the world is gonna come out of the wrath of God and no longer be destined for eternal conscious torment, receiving the wrath of God for their sins, it is only through the propitiation that Jesus made. And so when John here says that he is the propitiation for the world. He's saying that it is for any people in any place who would hear the call to trust in Christ, to bow the knee to him, and to turn from their sin. There is the one who pays the price for your debt of sin. There is the one who took the wrath of God for sinners. Here's the thing. I want us to remember and to be clear that as we engage in these sort of conversations with our neighbors and our, our immediate culture here in the West, I know that some of you may be frustrated that the way that these conversations are taking shape, whether online or in books, and there seems to be this intimidating cultural narrative that is coming against Christians we we have a, a world today that is obsessed with diversity and obsessed with power structures and oppressors can we just say that Jesus cares about this stuff way more than anyone he does he is the one who shed his blood so that one day people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language would have a way of salvation. Now He cares about this way more than I do, you do, our neighbors do. And so may, when we enter these things, we remember the big picture. There's one gospel for all peoples. And may we pray with the psalmist's. In Psalm 67, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. May we stick to the gospel in these matters and keep it at the front of the conversation. Because what is at stake is the glory of the Son of God. The glory of the Son of God We get a picture of this in revelation chapter five there one day in heaven the scene is this peoples gathered cleansed redeemed justified glorified in jesus singing worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Let us pray. Our Lord, we are reminded of our need Uh, That we would be selfish people, that we would prioritize our own preferences and culture, that we would prioritize ourselves above others. Lord, we are in need of a savior. We are in need of saving. And Lord, we are encouraged tonight to know that Jesus remains and always will be the answer to all of the world's problems, Every single one. And so may we be stirred with an unashamed attitude and posture and confidence in the power of the gospel to do what man cannot do, but what you have done. May we look to you, may our confidence not be in ourselves, But in the power of the gospel, transformed lives and saved sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.